open your Bibles, and we will be in Acts chapter 18. Now, for the last 18 months, many people were depressed and discouraged for many reasons. But discouragement affected, really, all of us, not just in the United States, all over the world. We've never been the same with people all over the world ever, ever, ever in our lives. And basically, that discouragement affected all of us because we were isolated, many people were, from our friends, our co-workers, and Basically, we were kind of isolated from our church families all over the world. Well, I, as I was driving to work this week, I was listening to 88.3, and they came on and said, we have a very encouraging announcement. So I'm thinking, okay, let me hear what this is. And here's what it was. They were talking, you know, it's a big radio station all over, a Christian radio station. The announcement just came in. Many countries in Europe are now ready to open up for tourists. And they're doing that because they knew that thousands of families had not been able to visit their relatives for almost two years because they couldn't get into the countries. They were bound, not chance. You can't come in here. No, too much virus. So I thought, wow, that, that's a good news because so many people get to see their grandkids and all the rest. So we're moving forward. Amen? Now, the, what we're talking about today is God's encouragement. Anybody need, ever need any little bit of encouragement? Okay, maybe you even need it tonight. We all need it from time to time. There's no question about that. So here's kind of the definition of it. Encouragement, the action of giving someone support, confidence, and one of the big ones, hope. So as you know, life is filled with discouragement, not just because of the virus and all that. Just, it's just life. Dis, discour, uh, discouragements and, basically, disappointments that happen in our lives. Well, today, you're going to learn a lot of ways that God can encourage us. So if you want to write them down, I'll, I'll do it by a number. One, two, three. I think there's eight that will do that for you. So let's turn to Acts chapter 18. And we'll start in verse 1. We'll be going through to 17. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. Now, the Apostle Paul is at the end, as we go through this, his second missionary journey. And next week, we will then begin his third missionary journey. Now, this shows you where on the map what that looks like. He had just come from Athens. Now he's in Corinth. And of course, he'd been to all those other cities earlier in the book of Acts. So that is basically, when you see it there, it's only 50 miles from where he was. So it was easy for him to get to Corinth. Now, that happened back in 50 A.D., and uh, it, Athens was noted for culture, you remember, brilliant people learning. Cor Corinth, very different. It's noted for commerce, all kinds of business, but the big problem was immorality. 
It was filled with immorality. Now, it was a center for the worship of Aphrodite, basically the Roman name Venus, the goddess of love, who promoted immorality in the name of their, quote, religion. And think about what Paul is walking into now. We know this historically is true. 1,000 professional prostitutes served in the temple during the day and every night. They would go down to the streets of the town and sell themselves to bring money back to the pagan temple. So Paul's walking into that, and that's just one part of it. I mean, it was a huge problem with immorality. So you guys at Vieira and Sebastian, you guys watching at home, just what you say, well, how did Paul feel when he got there? Well, take a look. We know that Paul arrived in Corinth. He was fearful. He was discouraged. And he was depressed. Now, that would sound strange to the Apostle Paul who wrote basically almost the New Testament. I mean, but he's like any of us. And I'll tell you kind of what that looked like. Now, in 1 Corinthians, I'll just read it to you. 2, verses 3 to 5, it says this. Paul says this. I I came to you in weakness, fear, and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and pervasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might rest, not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, we don't know exactly, but this is probably what happened. This discouragement, this weakness and fear, probably were due to three specific factors. Number one, it could be that his ministry in Athens, where he just left, discouraged him. Usually when Paul would go and teach, and it, you know his whole focus being a Jew but now a Christian, he, his whole focus would be on Jesus Christ, being the Messiah for Jews and for Gentiles. But normally when he would go, many people got saved, all kinds of things. And usually, not only that, he would plant a church in one of those cities that he went to, and then he would get people later to come and raise up disciples so they could have their own teacher as he moves on to a, a new mission place. But in spite of all his efforts, only a few people in Athens were converted, and there was no church there ever established because of Paul. So that was a shocker to him. He almost felt basically discouraged. What what happened? What was wrong with my teaching or whatever? And the second thing that was a factor was this. Paul came to Corinth alone. Now, that's a key word. Say it with me. Alone. Because you're going to see the opposite of that tonight. Now, number three. As he got to Corinth and he began to look around, he saw it was filled with every kind of immorality. And he's probably thinking in his mind, is this going to be two in a row? Athens not really healthy? 
couldn't get hardly anybody saved. In, in this place, can I, my impact come from the word of God with all these people with that kind of a lifestyle? So he's kind of, you know, he's thinking it in his, in his life what's happening. But here's something he doesn't know yet, but look at this. Even though Paul arrived discouraged, God would encourage him. Now, even though Paul was basically discouraged, he loved himself basically doing one thing, encouraging other people to build them up and refresh them. Now, to notice what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians. So encourage each other and build each other up. Notice each other. It's not just about one. It's people, numerous people. And build each other up just as you are already doing. See, Paul, when he looked at encouragement, it was almost always others-centered. Others-centered. Now, the Bible says we should encourage each other in the Lord, and that happens. But basically, Paul wanted to make sure it spread to the other people. Now, take a look at verse 2 and 3. There he became, when he got to Corinth, he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar, the head, de deported all Jews from Rome. He says, get out of here. We don't want any more Jews in Rome. Get out of here. So, all of a sudden, we know he, they had to come to a different place. And God led them, basically, to that place. God sent Aquila and Priscilla to come and help and serve with Paul. Now, he may have done that because God obviously knew. He felt he, wasn't, he was discouraged. He thought maybe maybe I was a failure. So God says, well, let me just tell you something. There's some other people I can work with you. So at Corinth, immediately they formed a friendship, he did, with this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And this friendship was not just for a week or two. It would basically last throughout Paul's whole life. Now, when you see that, it's amazing to me that when you watch that happening, they came for one reason, to serve Paul. And to help him with the ministry. They didn't come here just to have a little vacation or whatever in a neat place in Corinth. They came to come under his leadership. They served him. They loved him. Now, so number one, God's encouragement. I encourage you to write it down. Number one. How, how does God encourage us? Here we go. With good friends. With good friends. I won't ask you to say anything, but let me just say this, and you can just think about it yourself. Don't answer me. Can you think of one or two really good friends that whatever happened in your life, whatever time of the day or night, you know if you call them, they'd be right to your house? See, a lot of people don't have that anymore. We're separated from people too much. You remember the old thing I used to talk about. In the old days, how many of you remember wherever you were living, you would sit on the front porch and watch people go by? How many remember that? Okay, good. Now what do you do? Well, you come to the house, you push the door, it goes up, you put your car in, good night. 
Am I right? We kind of distance ourselves. Well, that's the problem. And so when you see all this happening, they come and they were discouraged, but now they are encouraged because they have a friend. Rome was not really good to them. So they are encouraged because they have a great Christian friend. So here's a couple things. A life without friends is a lonely life. It's a lonely life. Number two, I want you to say this with me. Take a look. I'll say it first. I like having good friends. Come on. I like having good friends. Now turn to somebody and say right to them. I like having good friends. Now there's a second one. Will you be my good friend? (laughs) Will you have dinner for me tomorrow on Sunday afternoon? No, we can't go that far. But that's the way it should be. Now, Solomon talked a lot in the Old Testament about friends. And let me just say this to you. He reminds us some of the advantages of real friendship. Not just somebody you know, haven't seen for 12 years. That's not really a real friend at this point. Here's what Solomon says. If you have a good... This is the advantages of friendship. If you have good friendship, encouragement in the time of trouble. That's a benefit. Number two, comfort. I just talked about it. In the time of need. Number three, protection in the time of danger. And you're going to see all three of those a little later that God does for Paul. Now, interesting, the Jewish Talmud says this, a man without companions is like a left hand without a right. Very common saying through the years. A man with a left hand, no right hand. Hard to do life. Hard to do life. Now, God had created his church, a body of believers. We're related to one another. We're family. We are God's family, united together to worship together, to celebrate together, to enjoy life together. And then our whole goal is the mission to expand God's kingdom so more people will go to heaven. Now, God wants each of us to be in a regular close relationships with others just like we see with Aquila and Priscilla. Now, you might not think this is true, but it's absolutely true. People need people. We need people. We need one another. And the other one is, people need God, and God needs people. That's just the way it is. One of the first things Jesus did, remember, when he started his ministry at the age of 33, down there, as he, you know, 30, as he began moving, guess what he did? He picked 12 friends to be with him for those three years. He picked 12 friends. Why? Because he knew he needed people. He was going to disciple them, but he needed them to help and encourage and, and just to tell them what's happening as they're doing ministry. And here's another thing. When we see this, a lot of people say, well, Pastor Mark, I don't, I don't have many friends. This, this church isn't friendly. By the way, this church is friendly. I have a lot of people come in, and they say, man, I haven't been to church 
And of course, it's coming back. It wasn't this way when the virus started. It was me and two camera people. That was it. And, uh, but now it's all coming back. Last weekend was an incredible crowd in the 1045. It was just like crazy. Do you know we had 170 kids last, in the second service last week? 170 kids in the, in the Sunday morning, 70 kids, and a bunch of kids on this evening as well. So families are coming back, and that's what God wants. He wants his family together so we can celebrate together. Now, here's one that maybe we don't understand. Personal relationships should be a priority in our lives because that's the way God did it. Remember when Adam and Eve were there? What did he do? Adam was lonely, so he produced, supernaturally, a wife. Now, here's the big one. First, and this is a biblical verse, you'll see it. First, we must be a friend if we want to have friends. Do you understand that? If you want friends, you can't sit there and wait for them to make the first move. You and I need to make the first move. You say, well, Pastor Mark, what kind of a doctrine is that? It's called the biblical doctrine. It's right here in Proverbs 18.24. Look at this. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. There it is. So if you want friends, you say, well, nobody will speak to me. Well, speak to them. Introduce yourself. You just did. And as you do that, friends help us in a lot of ways. That's why Paul's so excited, because he has these people. When they came together, he knew, okay, it's going to be easier than I thought, because he didn't really have anybody there. So he says it's going to be easier. So friends will help us grow spiritually mentally and emotionally. Now, this new Christian couple were tent makers, just like Paul was. It was customary back in those days that for Jewish fathers to teach their sons a job or a trade. So, basically, Paul's trade was tent making. That's what he learned which he used profitably because many times when he went to a, a country, that's what he would do. Uh, they didn't have, many oftentimes, they didn't pay for him. He, he had a job, and that's where he got his money to, to do ministry. And so that's the way it was. So God brought Paul and this couple together so they could minister together in planning a church in Corinth. Now, I want you just to scoot down to uh, verse 5, and I want you to see something. We'll be there in a moment. I'll mention it, but I want you to see this. Look at verse 5. We will see that God sends another two named Silas and Timothy, two of the friends he really knows well, very well. So God sends those, Paul and Silas and Timothy, more good friends. So we have Aquila, Priscilla, Paul, and Silas, and Timothy. All that group is together. Now, God knew that Paul needed a team. Paul could not do this ministry by himself. He always took a team when he was going with somebody. And he wanted faithful believers who would love him, Paul, and here's a big one, submit to him because he would be the leader 
and serve him with their own talents. Now, let me just say this. When I look around at our campuses, you know, we're a little over 29 years now that we started. We thank God for so many different people that serve as our campuses. It's impossible. When I started the church, I thought to myself, how in the world am I going to do this? You know, and of course, we started with a very small group of people. And then all of a sudden, God just went like crazy. And as I look out now, think of all the people that serve us at this church in so many ways. Faithful. We have 18, 19 pastors at our three campuses. They serve us. Why? Because they love you. I love you. And I just want to say thankful because we we have a team of all kinds of workers, not just pastors, but lots of things doing that. And because of that, one thing is really good. These teams serving together make people Make God look good. So I want to just say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Uh, you know, when you drive in here, there's always somebody, rain, snow, whatever. They guide you to which way, huh? They guide you to which way. I live in the Detroit. Come on. And the way it changes in life, who knows what's going to happen around here. And when you see that, the PowerPoint, you know, I organize that, but Brett does all that. Our, uh, here's our vice people with voice. Here's our camera guys. We have people all over the place. Thank you. Thank you. Because the only way we can have it is a team flows together. So that's what God did. He brings four people. Two of them Paul really knows well. The other two he's going to know for the rest of his life, basically. And why? Because he's going to do something amazing. He's going to work, and this is going to be a very exciting trip. So thank you so much. Now, Let's go on. When that trade was happening, God brought Paul and this couple together so they could be together, and they were also tent makers. So here is, we have a team. And here's number two, God's encouragement, the ability to work. Now, some of you that hate work, still listen to me. Okay. Most people spend at least one half of their waking hours Working. God knew that souls, and so he put principles all through the Bible. Here's what you do. Here's about work and what your work ethics should be done with excellence. Remember the scripture in the Old Testament says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with excellence because you're working for God. It's huge. And when you see that, that's why we're supposed to be excellent in our work. Now, uh, when you think about this, God designed all of us to work. I'm not going to all these verses. You all know that from the garden, Genesis 2, 2 to 3 and 15. He designed us to work. That was healthy for us, and God knew it. Work is not a curse. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. God gave Adam physical work to do before the fall. A lot of people say, well, there was no work when people, Adam and Eve, it's your fault. You sinned, and now we have to work. Wrong. He was given work before there was sin. You get it? A lot of people want to blame Adam. It wasn't Adam. God gave him work because he knew it was healthy for him. Now, don't allow your work to discourage you. Sometimes it does. But then you have to ask God to help. If this is where you've placed me, I need to just be there. 
and let me find a friend or two. And sometimes, you know, you just have to move on to something else, a different job, because it doesn't work. But I remember when I was up at Wistoff and as a director of pharmacy, I worked there 25 years. I think I went through four administrators. I was still there. <laughs> it was a God thing. And I started Bible studies at the church, I mean, at the hospital and all kinds of things. And it was just God. But we've all had bosses that maybe not our best friend at all. And so God will direct you. But work is required for all of us. Now, take a look at this. God's encouragement, if you look at verse 4, watch the next one. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue. Remember, Paul always wanted to go to the synagogue first because it was Jews first. Trying to convince Jews, and of course there would always be a sprinkling of Greeks, that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul was effective as he discussed and debated the gospel. So here's the third encouragement for us. Opportunities to share the good news. God has given every single one I'm talking to as a Christ follower, responsibility and privilege to share the good news. Not just pastors, all of us when God opens a door. Being able to do that not only encourages the person we're sharing with, but it really encourages us when God opens a door. And you say, well, then I'm going to get discouraged because some of them don't answer or say yes. That's not up to you. That's up to God. But you're doing what God said to do. What happened with Paul in Athens? Quite a few people came, but not many. Well, you can't blame it on them or God. It's their decision if they don't want to. Don't get discouraged yourself, and you're going to see that in a moment. Now, look at verse 5. I just read it to you before, but it's a good reminder. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, where they'd been together as a team, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So Paul was encouraged to see his two old friends, Silas and Timothy, and what he was not only happy to see them, but that church in Macedonia sent financial aid to Paul. So when they came in, he said, wow, good to have you guys here. And he says, well, we got a little something for you. That church loved you so much, they put money together to take care of your... And, you know, you can see Paul going, praise the Lord. How did he start? I'll never make it. I'm not good enough. Something's wrong. What does God do? Sends four people and now money to get through. And what happens when he has the money? He doesn't have to what? Build tents anymore. So does he just lay down? No, all his time will go where? In the ministry. Teaching. Discipling. Do you get me? Is that a mistake by God to give him money to do that? No, not at all. See, he had other people that could make tents. And so God said, you're going to need help. So you're going to have problems here, but you need to be full-time. And that's exactly what he did for himself. Now, he didn't have to pursue that trade at all, and he could give himself 100 times totally to the sharing of the gospel. Now, here's number four. God's encouragement. Financial resources to live... Obviously, we have to do work to do that and expand the kingdom of God. And I just want to say thank you because 
in our world today, it, yeah, many, many, many churches, we're not hard at all, but it's not what it used to be because people lost jobs, people never, haven't been back in church, all kinds of things happen. But let me just say thanks to you, you family, because you still give your tithes and offerings, which allow us to take the very same thing, the good news to the whole world. So thank you. We have missionaries all over the place. And some of them are going through really difficult times in the countries where they're at. So thank you for giving to the church, for tithes and offerings. And uh, pray for Pastor Serge in Haiti. It's, it's, it's just horrible in Haiti. And uh, he is getting better, went through the virus. There's no cure. There's no nothing. There's nothing. And people are basically going. So you can just keep this to yourself. But he, he asked for prayer. Because there's so much going on in Haiti, people will come, steal your car, put you in it, and basically kidnap you. And the next thing a wife or a friend will get, we need $100,000 or your husband's going to be dead. And that's happening all over Haiti. Guys, we're blessed. Can you, that's, that's amazing. He's still there serving God. We make sure he gets enough money to take care of his life. And we do that with the other missionaries. So, next thing you're going to see is what's normal. We see opposition coming against Paul in Corinth. Look at verse 6. But when the Jews opposed Paul, of course they're angry, and became abusive... He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul sensed his responsibility to preach to the Jews first, as I told you, Romans 1.16. But when his message of Jesus was rejected, he didn't waste any time. Basically, he just said, I'm going to the Gentiles. You won't listen? Okay. So remember this. When we step out to share the gospel, guess who steps up? Satan. He's always doing that. He hates people coming to Christ. And he'll say to people, that whatever that Paul guy said, that's not true at all. Get rid of the guy. He's useless. No, it's all a lie. But Paul's reaction and words relate to the awesome responsibility that we all have of sharing the good news. We just go and leave it to the Lord. Now, here's where Paul came up with that idea. Now look, Ezekiel 33, Old Testament, reminds us that Jews, that they now, this is what Paul is saying, that they now bear full responsibility for rejecting the gospel. So Paul says, I'm sorry, I did everything I could do. If you reject it, don't blame me, I'm sorry. You can't blame me, it's on you, it's yours. You bear the responsibility. I gave you the greatest decision you could ever do in your life. And if you say no, that's up to you. Don't blame me, I gave you the truth. Now, look at verse seven. This is good. Notice he says he has to go to the Gentiles. <laughs> I love this. 
Look at verse 7. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Now, how about that? Paul leaves the synagogue. Synagogue's right over here. God opens a place for him right next door. He can hear the wall over there in the synagogue. Oh, I hear that music over there. And they're hearing Paul preach right next door. I love God. He's got a great sense of humor. He didn't have to go 10 miles. He just stepped next door. And God opened it up. You know, when I did that and I was studying that, you know what came to my mind when he went right next door? God's a way maker. Next door. <laughs> Fantastic. He could have had to go for miles to find something. But he went right next door. And basically when he did that, uh, justice, Titus, justice, was a worshiper of God. So it's perfect. And so he continued to share the good news as he moved next door. Now, look at verse 8. Crispus, the synagogue ruler who is left in the other building, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Now, what does that mean? When Paul Molly said, I'm done, you heard truth? It's your responsibility. So here's a father, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, Jewish. What's he do? He talks to his family, I'm sure, and his wife, kids that are old enough to understand, and they believe in the Lord, and other people are going, well, you changed? You now do believe in Jesus the Messiah? Absolutely. And many others did the same thing. So see, Paul just did it right. He just said in love, I'm sorry, but I did the best I could. It's up to you. If you reject it, okay. But, boom, all of a sudden, God does this. So God honors Paul's determination, and the ruler of the synagogue and his whole family come to salvation. Now, when he finds out they all come to salvation, if he was a little discouraged that he had to leave where the Jews were, is he encouraged now? He's jumping up and down. He's probably screaming to that other wall, Thank you, Jesus! I love it. And they're going, Who is that? That's the guy that was here telling us about Jesus. So he became very encouraged. Now, look at verse 9. Now, this is a big one. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. And here's what he said. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not. Be silent. Why did God say, Paul, don't be afraid? Why would God say that? Because God knew that Paul was afraid. He knows everything. When you think about that, fear, Paul knew what happened on some of his missionary journeys. Here's why he's fearful. Most of his missionary journeys, he would be beaten. He would be jailed. He'd be kicked out of the cities after or even sometimes before he could even share the gospel. He was going all over in the world where there was all kinds of different denominations, quote, fakey kind of things, nothing to do with the real God. And so keep saying, man, I, I don't know if I'm going to get through this or am I going to have the same problem that I had before? Will I be beaten? Will I be put in prison? Will they kick me out of town? When is that going to happen? So really, you and I, when we have that background, you can't ba basically blame Paul for being discouraged and fearful. But Paul writes a letter. He knows better, but he still 
discouraged and a little filled with fear. Look what he writes later in, to Timothy, one of his young prodigal, uh, guys that he was discipling. Here's what he writes. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So notice, God doesn't condemn Paul. He gives him a supernatural vision and encourage him, encourages him through that vision. Paul, he says, there's nothing to fear, nothing to be afraid of. Just continue to preach the word. Don't stop it. Continue to preach the word. Now, verse 10 is exciting. Look at it. I have it on the overhead for you. Here's what Jesus, basically God, says to Paul. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack you and harm you. Because I have many people. In other words, I have, there are many Christians in Corinth. Here's number six encouragement. This is a big one for all of us. Remember, every single person I'm talking to, we get discouraged. Sometimes we're, we're depressed. Listen to these words. This is the promise from God. God's two gifts to the Apostle Paul of encouragement. The promise of his presence and the promise of his protection. Both things. And you will see this happen. So when I get the promise that God's always going to be with me, basically, the promise of his presence and protection should eliminate our discouragement. Because God is there to give us hope because he is going to fulfill what that is. Now, the other thing you and I need to know, God sees, God cares, God comes, and God delivers. That's exactly what's going to happen. He sees us when we're hurting. Maybe you're here hurting tonight. You're discouraged. You feel depressed. God, he sees us. Think about that. He does what else? He knows exactly what's happening there in our life. He not only sees us, but he cares for us. And then he comes to where we are. That's what he just did to Paul. He knew what he was. He cared for Paul. So he comes to him with a supernatural vision. Now, don't expect that. That's unusual. But he did that to Paul. And then he will deliver. Watch what happens. He'll be delivered as we go. Now, so verse 11, so Paul stayed for a year and a half. What did, you, what did God say? Stay teaching. So he stays for a year and a half teaching the word. Number seven, God's encouragement. The teaching of the word. So God gave Paul a special promise of success, so he continued those 18 months. He taught the word, the message about Jesus, forgiveness, salvation, reconciliation with God. Now, later, Paul would write this to Timothy. Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage. Here's the hard part for pastors. With great patience and careful instruction. That's exactly what our pastors have learned to do, all of us. That's what we do. See, when you get in the Word, the Word of God increases your 
absolute hope because you see the promises from God, and God never breaks a promise. He's all over in the world. Now, look at verse 12. I'll read it in the New Living. But when Gallio became governor of Achaia, some Jews rose up, and together against Paul brought him before the governor for judgment. So here comes more opposition. The Jews are going to go, we're going to get rid of that guy. He's going to be out of here. You'll probably have to go to jail. And look at, as you see this, here's what they're going to say. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that were contrary to the way they worship, of course, Jews. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accuser. <laughs> this is classic. And he says, listen, you Jews. If this were a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I would have reason to accept your case. But since it's merely, merely a question of religious words and names in your Jewish law, take care of the matter yourself. I won't judge this man. Hallelujah. What did Jesus say? You won't be put in jail. Wow. That's amazing. The head guy that was going to put him in jail said, no, this is not a civil deal. This is a religious deal. Take care of it yourself. I'm not interested at all. And Paul goes what? 100% free. Does God keep his word? Hello? Are you glad God keeps his word? Yeah, look what you're seeing here. See, when I teach, you can't go, well, that's a nice story. It has so many applications for all of us that I've already given you. So many of those. Now, look at verse 13 and 15. They accuse Paul, as I said, all of that. And he just says, no, I won't do it. And so he says, just take care of yourself. Now look at verse 16 and 17. So he had them ejected from the court. Guess who gets kicked out? <laughs> the Jews. And Paul just goes free. So they turned on Sothenus, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. I have no idea why in the world they were doing that, but uh, it was the Jews that were doing that. But, uh, probably the, the Greeks. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Here's number eight. God's encouragement, God's plans, and God's promises cannot be stopped. He promised his presence, and he promised his protection. What do we see? Both. You can't, God's plans just don't go down here. God's plans, he's sovereign, are God's plans. And his promises never fail. Now, when you're there, the application is kind of like this. Today, all of us have learned to walk in discouraged times. But God's word taught us that God has many ways to encourage us. I gave you eight ways. We all get discouraged. Just go back to those at some point. Put them where you can find them. Because you say, well, Pastor Mark, I'll never be discouraged ever again. Well, I won't even comment on that. What kind of world we live in? Yeah, right. Um, Discouraged, depressed. Depressed is one of the big ones. You realize how many suicides, unbelievers, you know, just, it's horrible. Because they had no hope. Our hope is Jesus Christ. He is our hope. Now, remember one other thing. God is for us. He's not against us. That's why he gave us his word. That's why he gives us his presence. That's why he gives us his promises. He is for us. 
Is Satan going to get into it? Absolutely. We're in spiritual warfare. Paul just ran into it. So when you see that, it isn't God coming after you. Actually, when we go through trials and God helps us, we grow from that because he knows he can mature us that way. Now, here's the last couple things I just want to give you quickly. First Thessalonians, Paul writes this. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are now doing. Thank you. Thank you for encouraging people. Thanks for hanging. Now, at the end of our services, people are hanging more in the commons and talking and whatever. New people. Now, some will come up uh, down here so I can meet them and all those kind of things. We have lots of new people coming now, so it's a really good thing. Hebrews basically is about the church. Look at here. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. We don't have time to fool around. We need to have friends. We need to encourage them. We need to invite people to church just like you're doing. And basically, one of the great things from that is we can learn to be God's, well, who is your best friend? What does the Bible say your best friend is? Well, let me show you. John 15, 15. I no longer, Jesus says, call you servants because the servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Do you know that you're a friend of God? I'll take that friend over any friend. Would you? Absolutely. But we have to have other friends. And I want you just to bow your heads right now and just pray for a moment, then we'll be through. I want you to pray for the people that I'm speaking to. Some of you believe in God, but you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That's what Paul was doing there. That's why that whole family, and when he moved next door, that, that whole family realized Jesus is the only answer. And so they came to the Lord. Some of you walked away, and you need to come back home. So let me just say this to you. Man's greatest need is forgiveness. Only one friend in the world can forgive your sins that, was set, that currently separate you from God. The friend's name is Jesus Christ. Jesus sent, God sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay everybody's sin. Don't kind of play around with it and go, well, I'll come to it at some point. No, God gave you an opportunity. And if the Holy Spirit's saying to you, it's time to come to Christ, get your sins forgiven, go to heaven when you die, this is the day, actually the Bible says today is the day of salvation because he's spoken to your life. Now, there's a verse that I like to use very often at the end. Let me just read it to you. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, not in your mind, in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul wrote it. You will be saved. Not if. You will be saved. Now, if you want to pray a prayer, I'm going to lead you in one for the first time to accept Jesus Christ or make a recommitment wherever you're watching from and at our campuses. I'm just going to pray a prayer. So you pray it quietly wherever you're at and under your voice and follow me through right now. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that you can forgive me. 
I do believe you died for my sins. And today I make a choice. I think my sins leaving me will encourage me more than I've ever been encouraged in my life. I didn't know how to get rid of them. But now I was reminded, you're my friend. You died for me. And so I receive your love, your gift of salvation. Thanks for forgiving me and removing all of my sins. I look forward in a positive way. My depression, I believe, will be gone. And my disappointment is already gone because I found the hope of the world. His name is Jesus. Amen.